welcome to another episode of Professors at Work, the weekly podcast from the American University of Beirut, where we discuss with scholars the research they're doing, what they're discovering, and what it means for the rest of us. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Thank you for being with us. I'm really happy to have this week as our guest, Professor Sumru Altu, who is the chair of the economics department, uh, and she's also associated with the Center for Economic Policy Research in London. Professor Altu, thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, inviting me. This is uh, very exciting. Well, what's uh, equally exciting and probably more significant is the research you're doing. You and your uh, colleague of yours in Turkey have done work looking at regional economic relationships, uh, what you call growth spillovers, um, in terms of how certain countries are in, in the Middle East and North Africa region, how countries impact each other uh, through various uh, domains like geography and trade and institutions and others. So so tell us uh, why you chose this topic. Why is this something worth exploring? And then we'll get into what you discovered and, and how it's going to fix all the problems in our region one day, we hope. Well, uh, actually, the idea is that no man is an island and no country is an island. Uh, a lot of effort has been devoted, uh, especially in the post-war period, post-World War II period, in terms of understanding national growth policies. Uh, for a long time, we had import substitution policies, uh, national uh, development agencies, and these have done valuable work. Um, however, uh, in the 1980s, as all regions were sort of opened up to trade and financial flows, uh, I believe this notion of spillovers has become more important. So here, the idea is, if one country grows, does it help to grow others? Okay. Uh -huh. And really, if you look at uh, some of the uh, constructs that we've had in the uh, uh, post-World post War II period, the European Union must be a prime example of trying to take advantage of these growth spillovers. Of course, they had political reasons for getting uh -huh. together to ensure peace among each other. Um, uh, but uh, the growth spillovers, I think, are also extremely important for them. I mean, if the UK is growing, well, until up until Brexit, it was able to accommodate uh, many Polish workers uh, who came, worked, uh, maybe... Uh, they earned money, they sent remittances back, they, they learned techniques. Uh, then they went back to their home country uh, mm -hmm. and uh, created uh, jobs, uh, businesses, uh, etc. Uh, so, um, uh, and of course, it can happen through trade countries, um, uh, countries you know, in the European Union, uh, the institutional aspect of course, is important, but trade is also extremely important in the European Union. Uh, Intra-European Union is uh, trade is uh, much greater than their trade with other countries. Yes. Now, the MENA region uh, always begs an explanation. So, you know, uh -huh. what is going on? What is going on with these countries? We had the Arab Spring in, you know, the 2012s, but it didn't quite work out. Um, uh, there seems to be a notion that the area is lagging. 
Uh, I don't know uh -huh. if you would agree with this. You know, both in institute. Hmm? Yeah, oh, absolutely. In many dimensions. I mean, it grew really impressively from the 1930s to the 1990s, but ever since it's been pretty bumpy and, and stagnant often. Right. And, and of course, uh, it, it's beset by, uh, this, uh, resource curse or resource issue where, uh, many economies are, uh, uh, are reliant on oil resources, oil and gas resources, even, uh, even countries in North Africa, uh, which might have actually been trading nations earlier. I remember talking to a gentleman from Tunisia in, uh, at a conference in Istanbul maybe 10 years ago. And he said, you know, this notion that Tunisians just want to go to Italy or Sicily or to the European Union to get jobs is, uh, is a fallacy. In fact, Italians would, uh, come the other way. Sicilians would come to Tunisia. So, uh, there was a period in which uh, this, um, uh, let's say intra-Mediterranean trade or trade between countries bordering the Mediterranean, uh, what was more vibrant, but it, it's, uh, but it's not the same as it used to be. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, uh, so this is what motivated us, um, to look at it. Uh, and we thought uh, the spatial econometrics tools that we were using were also, uh, you know, quite valuable uh, in trying to understand this. Uh, so so this ex is, uh, this explain is, for a moment what do you mean by spatial econometric tools? For well, origin. spatial econometrics uh, recognizes that uh, the correlation between variables, let's say GDP of two countries, is not only due to their national variables or national policies, but there may be a space dimension. So, uh, uh, like their borders, they may trade more. So, if you have a border with a very rich country, uh, you know, is it likely that you will grow faster? So, there right. might be a, a space dimension to some economic relations. This is the idea of spatial econometrics right. in and, economics. And when you set out to study this, I think you picked three uh, domains, geography, trade, and institutions? Yes. So, I mean, geography is uh, really uh, the first thing that comes to mind. You know, our countries uh, that are close ge geographically, uh, if uh, Jordan grows, does it help to... Uh, grow Lebanon. If Syria grows or if Syria doesn't grow, what mm -hmm. happens to Lebanon? I mean, right. we can talk about Lebanon at the end if you like. Lebanon can be actually uh, uh, considered as a special case of some of the issues that we considered in this paper. So the Lebanese crisis is maybe should not be a surprise uh, given the uh, uh, geographical uh, and institutional, um, and even the trade dimensions in which they were operating. So maybe we can talk about that uh -huh. at the end, if you like, sure. uh, the Lebanese case. Um, yeah. So, um, so geography is the first one, you know, countries uh, that are close to each other that have borders. Uh, will they trade more? Uh, uh, will, will that spur growth? Um, and, and we do find some evidence of that, of course. Mm -hmm. Then institutions, you can look at countries that are closer together institutionally. And here you can look at, uh, you know, there are various um, 
uh, measures of these things from the World Bank uh, indicators. You have um, governance, governance effectiveness. You know, you have a bunch of, uh, uh -huh. we use them. We created, I believe, a, a composite indicator uh -huh. of institutional quality. Now, uh, democracy, uh, uh, government effectiveness, effectiveness of the bureaucracy, etc. Right. Uh, that's described in the paper. And it's this kind of, uh, the index that we use has been, and these indicators that we used have been used by other papers in this mm -hmm. literature as well. Now, of course, the uh, countries in the MENA region also do not uh, fare very well. They do not fare highly uh, for different yes. reasons right. uh, in these um, uh, in these dimensions. And then, then there's the third: Do countries that trade with each other do they promote growth? And here we could think of East Asia, uh -huh. okay? Um, of course, there's also the issue of like copying policies. Uh, East Asia seems to be, you know, that's how you generate these spillovers. So Korea looks to Japan. Japan actually looked to the UK. I was very surprised when I went to Japan the first time. I went in 2014. I was... Um, visiting City University of Hong Kong in Hong Kong, which I mm -hmm. loved, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I did a, a little seminar trip to Kyoto University. And I thought, oh, my God, this looks like the UK. The cities are like a mix of industrial service. You know, they're post-industrial. They drive on the, uh, you know, the other right. side of the street. Mm -hmm. uh, it's highly regulated, you know. Uh, uh, but but actually, uh, it's not a surprise, as the first industrial, you know, uh, when it was industrializing, Japan copied the UK uh, and maybe uh -huh. Germany uh, later. But then Korea copied um, uh, Japan. Uh, then China, of course, Deng Xiaoping, you know, copied Singapore. He had a Singaporean uh, advisors. They looked to Japan. They looked to um, they. So so. So there you had almost like policy spillovers there. Right. But of course, they also trade with each other a lot because yeah. they have value added chains. So something that looks like it's been produced in Korea, South Korea or Taiwan, uh, you know, has been maybe produced 80 percent in China or something like that. Uh, and something that's produced in Japan may be produced in South Korea or Taiwan or whatever. So you have this. Uh, you know, very strong uh, inter-regional trade in the uh, East Asia. And of course, mm -hmm. I, I view it to be an extreme, you know, and an enormous success. I mean, regardless of what people say. Uh, now, if you go to Africa, uh, uh, William Easterly, who's a very smart person, he's, he was at the World Bank. I'm not sure where he is now. They have a paper on this, and this is, I had read this paper. Okay, by the way, where did these spillover ideas come to me? Actually, I was in a conference in China, in Beijing, a uh -huh. T20 conference, and there they were talking about connectedness, and I thought, hmm, this is sort of interesting. So I had a student, I said, let's try to look at this connectedness, these spillover ideas. Then I came across Bill Easterly's paper, uh -huh. and he says, in Africa, unfortunately, Countries with bad, you know, countries have copied bad policies. Right. Now, uh, so uh, we were working on this. This is my student's paper. And then I came to AUB. And, of course, it seemed like uh, very natural 
you know, to apply it to the region. And then we started getting these very interesting results. Right. So, so this is how the paper uh, worked out. You know, uh, these spillovers, I mean, the spillovers that we're talking about have been going on since the time of the Silk Route, you know, from the Marco Polo, the movement of right. people and goods and techniques and ideas. It can occur through geography. It can occur through trade. Uh, it can occur through countries copying each other's institutions and policies. Uh, and in fact, I think Europe did copy a bunch of stuff from uh, China uh, uh, in the, you know, right. uh, but let, let, uh, as they learned about it. Let, let me interrupt you just for a second before you, you give us the results and, and what it all means. Um, I, uh, a question I would ask is, do you have to factor into this kind of analysis the fact that um, the the MENA region, by and large, was <clears throat> most of it at one point or another was colonized by foreign colonial powers, and sometimes regional local powers controlled other uh, countries like Iran, uh, Egypt, uh, Turkey, uh, others at one point or another uh, had uh, control of the whole region. I mean, we're going back here uh, centuries. Um, so does the colonial influence make an impact? So f former colonies would tend to have links mostly with the motherland, even after they're nominally independent? Well, I mean, yes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, East Asia was colonized. Uh -huh. Indonesia was colonized by the Dutch. Uh, Burma uh, was by the British. Uh -huh. The Japanese were in Taiwan. Okay, that might explain some of the... They were in South Korea. So that might explain some uh -huh. Japanese-Korean-Taiwan relations. Uh, but the British controlled some of the other places, and the Dutch controlled some of the other places. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, to be studied. Be. Yeah, to be huh? explored. To be explored in another project one day. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the colonial ties. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, you know, it could have reformed and uh, and uh, turned into, you know, a, a modern uh, uh, trading zone. Actually... I have another paper on that. The Ottoman parts of the Ottoman Empire were trading zones. Right. I mean, Aleppo and Aleppo was an extremely important trading mm -hmm. zone and city during Ottoman, you know, in pre-World War One. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, cities like Goods were, yeah. Huh? Yeah, it's, uh, Aleppo, Alexandria, Mosul, Basra. Um, there's a bunch of these cities that were extremely uh, important. Yeah. The borders that were put in after World War One, and I have another short paper on this. Uh, 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 historical trade routes is this the road to regional development? Once the borders were put in after World War One, those trade routes were cut off, and sometimes people say that the poverty and backwardness of Eastern Turkey. Well, it's probably due to some other things like the Armenians also being uh, forced out of Eastern Turkey because they were like the educated bourgeoisie. That's another reason for the backwardness of Eastern Turkey. But another is that their trade routes with their natural trading partners like Aleppo and Mosul. Mosul also was an extremely important trading center. And, right. it, you know, it had nothing to do with the modern borders. So, uh, so it's maybe the colonial aspect is this, 
after the European powers did carve out the uh, carve up the Ottoman Empire, they cut off trading uh, routes. Right. They cut off people who had been mingling uh, through trade with each other for centuries. Right. Well, we've uh, we're, we're quickly running out of time. We only have about five minutes left, so I want to get uh, right to the good stuff now, which is okay. So, what did you find? What are the results? And okay, uh, what so, do they mean? So, so, so what we found is yes, there's some geographical similarity, uh, there's some institutional similarity, but again, it's not a great. You know, Lebanon and Iran are more similar institutionally than uh, you know some other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem that we found is that when you create like uh, this uh, um, bilateral trade intensity variable, you look at their bilateral trade measures, which is like exports uh, uh -huh. from each other, exports plus imports. Uh -huh. We find that they don't trade with, there's very little bilateral trade within the region. Right. The three yeah. countries that stand out are Saudi Arabia, United Emirates, and Turkey. Those are the trading countries. Uh -huh. In terms of the trade relations, when those countries grow, the rest of the region grows. Wow. And here, I mean, you can explain the Lebanese crisis. Uh, you know, uh, uh, as of 2014, oil prices fell. Uh, uh -huh. Some of these countries, the oil producers stopped growing. Remittances stopped. Uh, 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 Lebanon's other trading partner, Syria, suffered, you know, uh, civil war political uh -huh. crises. It's really not a surprise that Lebanon is in crisis today. You know, I call it a chronicle of a death foretold in some ways right. because its trading partners uh, suffered, uh, you know, lower growth. And as a consequence, remittances dropped. Now, right. So trade, okay, so coming back, trade is low in the MENA region. Uh -huh. The government sectors are large. Private uh -huh. sectors are undeveloped, except in some of these other richer, bigger economies. These are the three big economies in the region, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, United Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Uh -huh. These have better developed private sectors or industrial sectors, larger GDPs. Okay. Uh, -huh. uh so, uh, how does, uh, so what happens in the region? Well, the spillovers are through remittances and, you know, workers going to work in, uh, higher income countries. When those countries suffer growth slowdowns, the, uh, the, the, the countries that were relying on them, of course, you know, have, uh, huge problems. Right. And also they're resource dependent. Okay. Yeah. And this is also extremely important because they are re the trade in oil is requires simple, um, simple institutions. In other words, oil is kind of a uniform, you know, it's traded on Brent, whatever, it's traded right. on these exchanges. Oil is a uniform commodity. So you do not need to uh, create uh, important or, or diverse or complicated uh, contracting institutions right. to trade in oil. You just need some simple, uh, right. you know, you have Aramco, uh, it sells its oil to somebody. Mm -hmm. But if you're, uh, you know, making, uh, or if you're, for example, Switzerland, you're trading in banking services, you need to generate an entire rule of law 
the legal system, uh, lawyers, finance people, uh, people who understand banks. Uh, this of creates uh, uh, the infrastructure, the contracting infrastructure. So, uh, so this is this is the problem with this part of the world. The oil, you know, we can go back to the. I think the colonial legacy, as you said, is important. I think uh-huh. it cut off the natural trading patterns in this region. Uh-huh. The region then turned into a resource-dominated region, and it did not generate the contracting institutions to support a modern economy. Uh-huh. And so if the, um, if the <clears throat> Arab League has, uh, or and, uh, other regional MENA institutions hold a special session and invite you to tell all of the governments who are gathered there, what should they do to promote sustainable and, and more equitable growth in the long term? Uh, based on your findings, what would your your main recommendation be? Well, they should reduce the government sector. They should promote. Uh, they should promote uh, the um, uh, private sector more. And uh, this is true even in a country like Lebanon, which seems to be, you know, like more liberal, but it's not. Uh, even in Saudi Arabia, uh, many, uh, many Saudis, you know, many jobs are supported directly through the government. I don't know about the Emirates. Uh-huh. Uh, so they should uh, reduce the size of the government sector in the economy and promote their private sectors. Two, they should try to start diversifying their economies away from oil. And this is especially true uh, for the large economies. Of course, institutional development, like rule of law, uh, you know, democratic governance, government effectiveness, uh, 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 you know, dismantling of sectarian uh, 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 work practices in governments, right. mm-hmm. all of this also need to go. Uh, they need to look at Singapore. You know, Lebanon should look at Singapore. Singapore mm-hmm. may not be the perfect democracy, but it's very efficient. It's rules it's a rule-based country. Uh, uh, so this is what I would uh, recommend. But of course, uh, you know, democracy is also important too. I don't want to diminish that under any right. circumstances. Of course. So last question, we only have about a minute or so left. The recommendations you make have been uh, discussed by economists and political scientists and people for decades and decades. I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when where the oil boom started and, and people started talking about development models. Uh, and these, these issues all have been raised for years. Why do you think the governments have not followed this advice and have allowed themselves to just maintain the old patterns that, that have led to a situation where almost 70% of people in the Arab world, at least, are poor and vulnerable? Well, I mean, I guess you have capture by certain types of elites of the uh, political system. You see this in uh, many different countries. Uh-huh. And uh, it's been very difficult. This this part of the region, as I said, government expenditures have been high. So uh-huh. the public is unable to break its ties, maybe, to some of these politicians who also, uh-huh. su- uh, you know, supply their bread and... Uh, uh, so and uh, their um, uh, sustenance. Uh, now, uh, East Asia maybe was blessed that it didn't have this kind of 
uh, resource, you know, and so they had to, you know, make all sorts of things, you know, uh, whatever they could uh -huh. make, toys, chips, whatever, you know, right. fast trains. Yeah. Uh, and so they went this uh, different route. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think it's a political problem uh, that there's been uh, political capture by elites. Now, how is oh, that well, going to work? Huh? Now, go ahead. One last thought. Go ahead. All right. Uh, well, uh, now the, uh, I guess with oil becoming less and less important and you, you know, you had a very big decline in the price of oil in 2014, 2016, uh, -huh. uh it sort of went back up again, but now with all this green energy, uh, maybe these, uh, elites will eventually lose power. I mean, it's a difficult question. I really think it's a political economy uh, situation. Right. Uh, the the people and the elites are kind of tied to each other. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to break this uh, link with, with each other. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, thank you very much, uh, Professor Sumru Altu. Um, you are the chair and professor of uh, economics uh, at AUB and also affiliated with the Center for Economic policy research in London. Thank you for being with us. Thank you uh, very much for inviting me. You bet. You've raised a lot of issues which uh, will uh, trigger a lot more research, which I'm sure is going on, and we'll have you back again one day to talk about uh, what you keep, you and your colleagues keep discovering. And thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you to our audience for joining us, uh, professors at work. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Join us again next week at the same time. Bye for now.